Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman, who was in Eugene, Oregon this past weekend for the Fox primetime game. It was kind of a uneventful Saturday, to say the least, and... Arguably, the biggest upset actually happened 15 minutes for me in the Pac-12 After Dark window, Washington, a team that, as of last week, I was still predicting to go to the Rose Bowl, loses to a 2-3 and three Stanford team. And that was going on around the same time as your game. So uh, before we get into OU Texas and LSU Florida, the big games this week, let's indulge people a little Pac-12 football talk. Look, you've been to Autzen Stadium plenty of times. It is one of the best places, not just on the West Coast, but anywhere to see a game. And we had some good drama in that game on Saturday night. Uh, Oregon had three turnovers in the first half and were trailing seven to nothing and ended up rallying to win 17 to seven. Uh, the atmosphere there is pretty awesome. Just it's, yeah, you know, the, the crowd is, is right on top of you. It's loud. And they have some great traditions, one of the which is their, uh, their rendition of Shout that the whole crowd, but not just the whole crowd, even the, the Ducks players really have gotten into right before the start of the fourth quarter. Uh, something I tried to, tried to uh, take film of and post on my uh, Twitter feed and people can see that. But, uh, you know, this is a good Oregon team. What it is is one of the better defensive teams probably Oregon's had in a long time they actually have not given up more than seven points in a game since August and that was the opener when they lost to Auburn but they're very good on defense they have a lot of athletes uh, at all three levels we know Justin Herbert their quarterback is super talented with a big arm and he's very athletic the offensive line is good here's the question marks with them the skill talent around him C.J. Verdell, who was a 1,000-yard back last year, he actually got knocked out of the game with an ankle injury. He was in, he returned to the field in a walking boot uh, in the second half. I reported on Monday that a source told me they think he has a chance to play on Friday night against Colorado, that it's just a sprain, so that's a positive. But the receivers, they're not uh, – they're certainly not what USC has. They're certainly not what LSU and Alabama and Clemson have or Ohio State. And they had three of their best receivers were coming back off injury. I think the timing wasn't great. If this team has any hope, and they obviously have to run the table to be considered as a playoff team, they need some real production from those receivers, I think. And that's that's the area. Now, look, it certainly doesn't help them that Auburn lost in the swamp to Florida. Now, if Auburn ends up knocking off LSU or knocking off Alabama down the road and resumes to being a top 10 team then losing to them not a not a, on the west coast meaning it wasn't a it was a neutral site game i think that would not 
hurt them that much. But uh, I don't know. You're the you're the bracket and bowl projections guy. Give me a percentage on what chance if Oregon were to run the table, go twelve and one. Ten percent chance of them making the playoff. Twenty five percent chance of making the playoff. What do you think? I have no idea, but I will say this: you have some idea. I, I, it's so many different variables. I don't know where you would even start. It mostly about who the other teams would be. I don't think Auburn is is who they will be linked to as much as you would think. I mean, in, in the five years, the only time I've really seen losses brought up is when it's Ohio State losing by thirty to Iowa or Penn State getting blown out by Michigan. They they do hold those bad losses against teams. When I've you say bad losses, you're more talking the blowout losses. Than, yeah, okay. What I haven't, I mean, maybe somebody will remember and correct me, I don't remember a lot of talk about somebody being left out cause, or somebody be making it because they played somebody tough um, and lost a close game. No, it's really about by the time the Pac-12 teams all get done cannibalizing each other, and by the way, right now, you know, two games into conference season for most of those teams, Oregon and Arizona are the only ones that haven't lost a conference game. They're the only ones 2-0. and Will there be enough top 25 teams that you get to the end of the year and Oregon say, you can say, hey, we went 12-1, and we won the Pac-12, and we beat four top 25 teams or three top 25 teams? Because you're going to be competing against SEC teams, Big Ten teams, that are going to be able to claim that. Um, I think... I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't think Oregon's going to the playoff because I don't think Oregon's going to run the table. I don't think they're good enough. They do have a great defense. You're right about that. If you could take the 2014, that's what's so jarring, right? We think of Oregon, we think of high-powered offense, maybe not so much defense. I feel like it's gone in reverse. I feel like whether it's because of the receivers or the fact that their running game is kind of average, they aren't fully taking advantage of Justin Herbert. It's not like he's out there putting up Tua numbers, not even close. Um, so I don't think anybody's going to get out of that conference at less than 10-2. and two. But I thought Matt Brown made a good point, our editor who does the AP um, behind the ballot. It's unfortunate that the way the sport is now and all the focus on the playoff, that, okay, the Pac-12 is probably not going to have a playoff team. So they're done. We're going to forget about them. We're not going to pay any attention to the rest of the season. It's actually kind of fascinating what's going on in that conference right now. I mean, you look at what happened Saturday night. Here on this podcast two, three weeks ago, we were both like, oh, man, Stanford stinks. They're, they're going to have a really bad season. And then they come out against Washington, and they look like the Stanford of old. They ran it down their throats. Uh, and that's despite having three true freshmen playing on the offensive line now because of injuries. And so, okay, now they're back in the mix a little bit. And guess what? Washington State, not so much. Uh, you know, I don't think Utah's done because they had one loss at USC. There's a ton of teams that are still in the mix to win that conference. Oregon may be the front runner, but I don't know that they're head and shoulders above the rest of the Pac-12. All right, but I don't think it, I don't think it, whatever it is, October 7th, just like you can say, I don't know that we could... Uh... We could put a percentage on what chance they would have. I don't think you can write anybody off because we just don't know. College football, crazy stuff happens. As as dominant as Ohio State has looked, we don't know that they, could, they couldn't stumble somewhere along the way or someplace else couldn't lose a couple games. Or you get injuries, and the team you think looks like it's one of those top six or seven 
I guess we're, we're not saying six anymore because I think we have to include Wisconsin in that batch, correct? Of what, playoff caliber teams? Well, remember early, I want to say this like three weeks ago, I think you wrote that there was like six teams that were clearly head and shoulders above, and I don't think you had Wisconsin in one of those six, right? Uh, no. And I'm not sure I would have them in one of those six right now. I think they're very good. Uh, I mean, what about Penn State? Nobody. Here's the thing. None of these teams have really been tested. Uh, almost none of these. What teams. about Florida? Fl- what about Florida? Florida has been tested. I think what's going to so be interesting the about the second half of the season is because so many of those that whatever you want to put the number on that group six, eight, nine. For whatever reason, a lot of them have really backloaded schedules, and so the prime example of that is Oklahoma. We've all been just blown away by how great the offense has been, how great Jalen Hurts has looked. And then you say, okay, well, they're 5-0, and and what was the best win of the five? Maybe Texas Tech. So this week, Texas, Red River, preseason's over. This is what's going to be so fun about starting this week and the second half of the season. We're finally going to see an Oklahoma play somebody. Ohio State's got Wisconsin in a couple weeks. Uh, and like you said, some of these teams that, and we've seen this time and again, some of these teams that look so dominant when they're beating up overmatched opponents, you never know what happens when they finally face a team that can match up with them physically. Question for yes. you. So you gave me a hard time, and rightly so, a week or so ago about me not reading your your weekend stuff. Uh, so I did read your forward pass. We're going to get to something in there a little later. But um, in your top 10, and you're talking about who has who's proven themselves who hasn't you have clemson number four is that based on anything from this season well i dropped them from i, I dropped them so i know i'm just saying is that based but on any what are you basing they they won their first i mean the you before the unc game they were routing people and you could see i think you could see where the defense was gonna is really good i don't think the unc game was anything on their defense but Trevor Lawrence has been a little bit of a concern. So, uh, if you're, I mean, same. I can say the same thing about Alabama. Is that based on anything they've done this season, or is that based on the fact they're Alabama? I don't know. That's a that's that's a valid point. If you were to, and let's, I don't want to make you defend every pick here, but because you're talking about, you have Wisconsin number nine, uh, and maybe that's a reflection of them. Look, I mean, I'm not sure they could have done any more than they've done against the schedule they have. Uh, I'm surprised you have Wisconsin below Notre Dame, though. I feel like you gave Notre Dame a little bit of credit for a close loss on the road, which I don't. But I, I'm just surprised you have Wisconsin solo. Well, they do have a top 25 win over Virginia. Wisconsin's signature win right now is against Michigan. That is, which was a dominant win. It was a an dominant win, game. and that's considered a top 25 win. But after watching that 10 to three. Whatever you want to call it, the other day, I, I don't necessarily. I don't know. I think that's that's splitting hairs. I, if I will say, if I could do it over again, you know, I do this late Saturday night while watching the late games and whatnot. I think I would have left Penn State out, not because I don't think Penn State's good, but they truly have no resume, and kept Auburn in because I knocked out a team that yeah they have a loss now. That loss is on the road at the swamp. Uh, but they still have that Oregon win. So they're probably more deserving of being in there than Penn State. Yeah, again, I, like I said, I think you're splitting hairs. But let yes. me ask you, as you're picking apart my top 10, where would you have Clemson ranked? I don't know. I mean, that's fortunate. I don't have to do this ranking, so I get to nitpick yours. 
I mean, if you go looking through your list, uh, the first, like, I think Georgia had a nice win over, over, uh, over Notre Dame. You know, it wasn't a dominant win, but it was a nice win. I, I, I think that looking at this, I don't know what I would have on, on top of my list right now. Well, you know, I, I was impressed by what I saw from Florida. You have them at seven. And honestly, I'm not sure I could make an argument for them being, being much better. Now, Florida goes into Baton Rouge this weekend and wins. Florida should be the number one team in the country. This is a week after you said if Auburn won at Florida, they should be the number one team in the country. They didn't, though. Yeah. I said if. I mean, to me, what I'm trying to say is I think we got to give some credit to because, look, everyone's going to play some of these really good teams other than Clemson. Uh, so I think when you look at how these things sort themselves out, I think this thing is very fluid. But if you start going in and playing head-to-head against against really good teams, and we know Auburn's really good. Now their quarterback is young, and that's a tough place to play. And he looked really bad against a good defense. But I think when you look at LSU went into Texas and lit up that team, one, and you know, it was an impressive performance by LSU. If Florida can beat that team that's 5-0, and I think that's a that would be a strong back-to-back statement for the Gators, and I think they'd be deserving of being the number one spot. Is that crazy to say, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think that's crazy to say, uh, but I will. So here's the thing with Florida. We were both very skeptical of them. This was a great win. Uh, they, their defense is fantastic, uh, so I gave them – the proper respect and put them at number seven. Of course, there are a bunch of com- people in the comments saying, you know, you must be a real moron that it took you this long to recognize that, to which I'm like, uh, two of your first five games were against FCS teams. It, this, uh, what could I possibly have read into your big win against Towson? But now, having said that, after they go into, after they beat Auburn, you do realize that this team that you're talking about possibly being number one next week, Vegas is not so high on the Gators, or not as high on the Gators as, as the pollsters are. They are almost a two-touchdown underdog at LSU. Does that surprise you? It's, it did. It honestly surprised me that they were... Um, I would have put, I put the spread at like six, just because I think they their defense is really good. But look, they're going to face a way more experienced quarterback in a different environment. It's flipped. I mean, if that game was in... Was, was at Auburn. I'm not saying they would beat Bo Nix, but I think it's much more of his comfort zone. Now they're going completely opposite. They've got a very, very experienced quarterback in Joe Burrow. Probably a better group of receivers. The, the wild card to me with LSU is they have not, and they played well. I mean, they, they Jordan loves super talented quarterback at Utah State. He threw three picks, did not look good. And LSU is going to probably get back some healthy guys or some guys who've been banged up who hadn't played in the front seven last last couple weeks. Does that make a big difference? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm very interested to see this game just because what Florida's done on defense, I think we both had this stat, Four, or they've allowed four touchdown passes and have 12 picks. Nobody has a TD-INT ratio like that in college football. It's not even close. I mean, what... Todd Grantham, and he doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, because everyone will talk about Dave Aranda, some will talk about Brent Venables, Mike Elko, rightly so. There's a lot of Jimmy Lake. But I think what Grantham has done for a while now has really been impressive, especially what I what he's done so far this year. So if he can go in there, and this is 
to me, this is a phenomenal matchup because the way LSU's offense has played with that passing game that Joe Brady has brought them and the way Joe Burrow is playing, if they get a couple of hiccups and Florida goes in there and slows them down and wins, man, to me, that's a huge statement for the Gators, I think. You know, the interesting thing, there's a couple of things that came up while you were in my head while you were talking. One, the interesting thing about Todd Grantham and maybe why he doesn't get as much respect, it was not that long ago that he was Georgia's D.C. and and not he was not viewed favorably by the Georgia fan base. They came up with the expression third in Grantham because there would be so many times that they would give up a third and long to the opposing team. But I, he's had several stops since then, Louisville, Mississippi State, now Florida, and the stats at every stop have been really good. Um, in terms of Florida in general and why there might be some lingering skepticism, this win the other day with this dominant defensive performance and doing just enough on offense, that's not exactly new, right, in Gainesville. I think people, when they think of the past decade of Florida football, it's been one year after year after year of dominant defense or really good defense, anemic offense. And you almost forget that Will Muschamp had an 11-win season there. Uh, uh, Jim McElwain had a 10-win season and went to two SEC title games. And Florida just last year went 10-3 and three and finished in the top 10. But it's never quite felt like the, anything close to the Florida of old. And so I think you know, Swamp was rocking. Andy Staples obviously lives in Gainesville, knows Florida well, said that was probably the best atmosphere they've had in about seven years. You know, there's this feeling in Florida, they've now won 10 games in a row, by the way, that it's starting to get back there. Uh, I think the difference for them is, I mean, nobody's going to say Kyle Trask is anywhere on the level of some of the better quarterbacks in the SEC. Uh, but at least they've got some playmakers now. There was time when they had neither the quarterback or the playmakers. And so that game was basically decided by two big plays, a 64-yard touchdown early in the game and an 88-yard uh, LeMichael P. Ryan run at the end of the game. Those were that was the difference in the ball game in a game that otherwise was marked by turnovers and uh, a fake punt that didn't go well for Dan Mullen uh, and lots and lots of defensive linemen. If Derek Brown had not slipped and returned that that fumble all the way for a touchdown, would have been the greatest big man touchdown in the history of football. Well, I shouldn't go that far. I'm sure there have been some, but in the recent history of college football, so I'm like you. I'm interested for LSU Florida. Joe Burrow, you mentioned the uh, four touchdowns, 12 interceptions for the Gators defense. Joe Burrow has thrown 22 touchdowns against three interceptions. So something's got to give in that game. Which one are you more excited for, though? That one or Red River? That one. Really? Just because I, I thought, yeah, I think you have one defense that has been lights out and one offense that has been ridiculous. I think when you look at Oklahoma, Texas, and in full disclosure, this is a Fox game, so so don't stare daggers at me to people who are listening to this who I work with. But um, Texas's defense has been really shaky. They were shaky in the beginning of the year, and now they're even banged up. And so I'm not saying they're going to get blown out. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But I just feel like you could be looking at a 45-38 kind of game there. And... And maybe, look, I don't think that you're going to get that in, in Baton Rouge, but I think both are great games. I, the way I feel right now, and look, maybe Tom Herman's just really good in games where he's the underdog, but 
I just have a little more confidence in Oklahoma right now. I think what I do want to see and why this is a, you know, it's certainly a big matchup, but what I'm very intrigued by is Sam Ellinger against Alex Grinch's new rebuilt defense. That They still don't have enough, you know, big athletic people in the back end for that Oklahoma defense, but I do think they're better, and I want to see how much better they are, and I think that we'll find out a little bit about that on Saturday. Yeah, I think if you were to just go on paper and look at Oklahoma's offensive statistics, which are the best in the country, and Texas's defensive statistics, which are, I believe I, last night I saw that if you go by yards per play, Texas is all the way down at 99th in the country, you'd say this is going to be a slaughter. However, lots of factors at play here. First of all, those that's just the raw number. It's not opponent-adjusted. Texas obviously played LSU. They played Oklahoma State, two of the more explosive offensive teams in the country. Also, um, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, like I said, this is really, I feel like Oklahoma's season to this point was their preseason. You know, it was a bunch of glorified scrimmages for the most part. Uh, Texas has already played LSU, Oklahoma State, and then at West Virginia. West Virginia, rebuilding mode, probably not that great, but that's still a tough road trip. So they are much more battle-tested going into this than the Sooners are. And then, like you said, Tom Herman has a history of these big game upsets, including last year's Red River game. So I'm I'm psyched for it. I I, I think uh, you know you and I when we first started covering this sport, there was that long period there where the OU Texas game was always the big game of the week, where they were both in the top ten and they both had national championship aspirations. And obviously, that has not been the case recently. This isn't quite there. Texas is a number 11, so they didn't get their first uh, top 10 matchup since 08. But this is a big one. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think this is, this is the best weekend of games I feel like we've had so far, just because you have two huge matchups in the top 10. You've got two huge matchups in the top 10, and then you've got a bunch of others. And maybe we're all just a little bit starving for this because the, the, I feel like the last uh, three weeks have been lacking in the schedule and that's Andy and I talked about this on his podcast because there's an extra off week for everybody this year I mean this past week neither Alabama or Clemson were playing right so that obviously waters down the schedule a little bit um whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Andy and I talked about this on his podcast you're cheating on me and the audible listeners is that what you're telling me uh you can blame our producer John you're Hayes sneaking for around that. He, he, he's the one who's booking the Andy Staples podcast, and he asked me to come on, and I was happy to do so. Uh, so John Hayes is basically bringing other women around to you. That's what it is. Okay, before you go about. too far with that analogy, <laughs> how many times have you been on the Andy Staples podcast in the last couple of weeks? Ooh, good one still. Good one. At least two, um, right? Yes, but I don't reference it on here. I don't <laughs> flaunt it in your face. We're all friends. And uh, you, by the way, with this would be a good opportunity to mention that the Andy Staple Show is available. Oh, now you're whoa, whoa, whoa. now you you're, now you're now you're plugging him in my face. I'm oh returning the favor. He spent the whole podcast the other night plugging the Audible. It's available. Was he feeding you? What is he feeding you? His like burnt ends while he was getting you to do this late at night. Can I get an intervention from John at this point? I feel like I'm just <laughs> doing my company duty here. Sorry, Stu. I'm just giving you a hard time. Okay. Uh, no, it's it's understood. Um, 
Okay, so we were talking about the two big games for this week, but there's a lot of other intriguing ones as well. USC Notre Dame, rivalry game, and like we've been saying all season, I feel like every week, USC is great reality TV. Every week's a new soap opera storyline. This week, is I assume Keaton Slovis will be back. Uh, they're going to play the Irish. The Irish should win this game, but I don't know that it's a gimme. Yeah, look, Talanoa Hafunga is probably going to be back. He's their best player, a really good safety. He missed the Washington game, and he was missed. So, look, I, I think this is the game. If Clay Helton wins this game, I'm not saying his job is safe, but if he wins this game and USC goes on a roll, I mean, that's a big if, obviously, uh, it's, it might be hard to, to have a coaching change there. Now, if he loses this game... There's some people you talk to around the program who think there's a, there's a lot of people who are thinking, okay, they got to get the AD search sorted out. But at some point, if they are going to move in a different direction, if Clay Helton starts out three and three, which is what we th- all most of us thought would happen, and that would be the case if they lose this game, the schedule does ease up quite a bit in the second half. And if Clay Helton goes on a roll after losing to Notre Dame, I think there's some people going, whoa, then all of a sudden it makes the decision look harder whether you keep Clay Helton or not. And stay tuned on what's going to happen if they lose. If they win, I think there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of diehard USC fans with some mixed feelings. As much as they hate Notre Dame, I think a lot of people in their minds have already moved on from Clay Helton. And that's a really awkward situation they got there. Yeah, I- I don't think anybody expects them to be back win, win or lose against Notre Dame, but obviously if they can win this one and get on a roll and be 10-2 and two at the end of the season, I'm not sure I've seen a coach get fired for going 10-2. and 9-3, and three, yes. Mark Rick got fired 9-3. and three. Uh, Frank Solich got fired 9-3, and three, but I've never seen a 10-2 and two coach get fired. So that would certainly be interesting. Here's an underrated one for you. Penn State. You talk about teams that have not been tested yet. Penn State would definitely be on that list, although Pitt... Uh, obviously, I think Pitt is actually better than I realized. They almost blew it against Duke the other day, but they ended up pulling that one out. So I guess I shouldn't say Penn State's completely untested. They did have that Pitt game. But that's different than going on the road to Iowa. Kinnick at night is in the past, been a place where top 10 teams go to die. And Penn State almost did two years ago, if you remember the great... I feel like that was the signature performance of Saquon Barkley's Penn State career and they still needed a walk-off touchdown pass to win. I'm saying all this despite the fact that Iowa this past week went to Ann Arbor and scored all of three points and Nate Stanley uh, looked hopeless and lost the entire game but every week's a new season they're playing at home at night could be a tough one for the Nittany Lions. Geez Stu I may have to stick in for for the next podcast but I feel like you are ready to pick the Hawkeyes as a as an upset here. Well, people can come listen to the Audible Extra on Thursday and find out. You were just a shilling machine with these. I'm not even leading. You I guys. would have said before the season, you know, when you play out the schedule, like, oh yeah, that's a that's going to be a rough spot for Penn State. I could see them losing there, but I have to figure out how to justify that after what I saw on Saturday. Um, no chance for the Hawkeyes. No, I definitely give them a chance. I think they're they're pretty good. I think being at home, you know, uh, 
it struck me the other day watching the Michigan Iowa game that that a couple of things. One, Don Brown's defense of late is really boomer bust. They either get shelled by by Ohio State or they got certainly got got shelled by Wisconsin. Had all sorts of problems with Florida, especially in the second half. But then these other games, it's just their lights out. And so there's that. But there's also this team, because you never hear about as the big house as, as big as it is being a, it's nothing like LSU, it's nothing like Clemson. It's not the loudest place. Yet there is such a comfort zone. Yes, most almost everybody plays better at home, but there is a seems to be a much bigger gap with with Michigan than everybody else when they are in their home environment. And conversely, they don't travel so well. And so I think Iowa has a really good chance to 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 uh, bounce back and pull an upset here. Is that true? I didn't know that. Michigan fans don't travel to the No, road. that's not what I meant. I meant they don't play as well on the road. I, I, I don't think oh, it's a Well, that's definitely true. Yeah, I don't. If you had read forward pass last week, you would have seen that stat <laughs> about the huge discrepancy <laughs> okay. between this is, the home. This turned into Michigan be a little throwing shade at each other road. a lot more than I had intended to. That's what people like about this is podcast. It, is it? Okay. Uh, listen, Penn State, Iowa, here, here's one for you. Here's a stat for you. So... Penn State's defense is really good. I mean, really good. Uh, they've given up four touchdowns in five games. But you know who, who's only given up five touchdowns in five games? Iowa. So Penn State is a, is number two in scoring defense, allowing 7.4 points per game. And Iowa is number three, 8.8 points per game. What do you think? the Whoever you think is going to win, what do you think the final score will be? I think the final thirteen ten. I think the final score would be like fourteen thirteen or seventeen fourteen. Yep, shaping up to be that kind of game. What else on the account? I mean, it's a it's a loaded week. Are there any other ones that stand out to you? The game that I think it will get lost in the shuffle because there's so much good good stuff this weekend. But it's one that's really off the grid, and it is on the blue at Boise. It's a late-night game, Hawaii at Boise State. I don't think people realize how good Nick Rolovich has Hawaii playing. They're 4-1. and one. By the way, that win on the last play of the game against Arizona, that looks a little better now that if not for that great effort play by Hawaii's defensive tackle stopping Cole Tate near the goal line, Arizona's 5-0. and oh. So... This one is for the Mountain West. Wait, wait, wait! People keep say people keep saying that wasn't if Khalil Tate had gotten in, wasn't that to go to overtime? Uh, you're right, but I th- I think that's look. Who knows what the momentum? I would think it looked like they were going to win that. Maybe game. they would have gone for two. They probably would have gone for two. So anyway, so and as you point out, Hawaii has not beaten Boise in a dozen years. So this is a really good matchup. It's definitely worth staying up for if you're on the East Coast. If you're on the West Coast. You have no excuse. I actually think this is a much uh, more compelling matchup than some of the other games you've listed. Uh, Florida State at Clemson. If it was in Tallahassee, I might think it'd be a little more competitive. I don't think it will be. Alabama at Texas A&M. Sorry, I don't think Alabama's getting challenged there. You with me? You think this is maybe the, the third or fourth most interesting game of the week? Yeah, I think it's a big one. Uh, now, Hawaii, you know, Michigan may have a big home road difference. Hawaii, for obvious reasons, has a huge home road difference usually. 
Uh, case in point, they beat those two Pac-12 teams at home. They lost pretty soundly when they played at Washington. So this would feel a lot different to me if it were at Hawaii. But it is a big one, and in, and it has become bigger. And this is a great segue to something else we were going to talk about. Uh, because UCF suffered their second loss of the season the other day uh, against Cincinnati, last Friday actually. And so it would seem that we're going to have a new New Year Six representative from the Group of Five this year. And right now, Boise is the one that everybody that does these bowl projections, myself included, has in there. They're number 14 in the AP poll. They uh, have that opening win at Florida State, which is great for the resume. But if you're handicapping it now, is it possible that the next in line is a is a team that, that once went about 25 years with complete irrelevancy after the death penalty? The 6-0 SMU Mustangs? What a story that is, right? Oh, um, man. And they were on the ropes against Tulsa, right? It's I didn't get to see that game because it was going on similar to my game. Oh, you might not want to admit that. That actually was probably the most exciting I have no choice game but of the to day. Admit I was doing a TV game. There's yeah. no way I could have seen it. I mean, I didn't, I'm not going to claim that I watched it from start to finish. It was really about the fourth quarter. But first of all, that game had one of the stranger plays you'll ever see in that Tulsa scored on a kickoff. They, they kick off, and the for whatever reason, the SMU return man treated it like it was a punt and just let it roll into the end zone. Tulsa pounces on it, touchdown. Uh, but yeah, they were up, Tulsa, Tulsa was up 30-9 to in the fourth quarter. And SMU came back to win. One of the one of the most fascinating columns on the athletic every week is Chris Vanini's most interesting stats of the weekend, and this one just blew my mind. Now, granted, he got this from ESPN Stats and Info, but over the past 15 seasons, FBS teams trailing by 21 plus in the fourth quarter were nine and three thousand. At first, I read that as a, like a odds, like a Vegas line or something, but no, that is the record. Nine wins, 3,000 losses. SMU pulled it off. They ended up winning in triple overtime on a, on a touchdown pass that was initially ruled incomplete. And then upon review, touchdown SMU wins. I talked to Sonny Dykes on Sunday. Pretty remarkable uh, rebound for him. You remember? You're a little behind the curtain thing. Remember, remember when we were at the national championship game and you were playing in that beach celebrity beach game while also trying to break the scoop that Cal was about to fire Sonny Dykes in January. Yes, I definitely remember that. Yeah. That whole thing was bizarre. They they waited till January to fire him. Uh, and, it, and it seemed like it wasn't as much. I mean, they weren't doing great on the field, but it was as much about the fact that he was interviewing for seemingly every job that came open. So Yes, they, from what I had subsequently heard, was the administration there did not feel like he was as invested in Cal athletics as they wanted him to be, that that a lot of people didn't there didn't feel like he wanted to be there. And I'm not look, sure how invested Cal athletics was in Cal football, but that's a whole other story. Um, it's not like he lit it up in his time there. No, look, did. I mean, I think this is a case, too, where both programs or both situations have greatly benefited from the change. I mean, Justin Wilcox seems to be a really great fit there, and Sonny Dykes has proven to be a fantastic fit in... Uh, in Dallas. Well, Sonny gives a lot of credit to his predecessors because I think, you know, if you're if you're um, you know, a very casual follower of the sport and you see that stat that SMU has entered the top 25 for the first time since the death penalty, you you may think that 
they've just been they've done nothing between the death penalty and now and as we remember first it was june jones getting them to some bowl games and then chad morris uh definitely upgraded the talent there that sonny dykes is benefiting from but then he's brought all these transfers in including shane bichelle the quarterback from texas uh, as he said that probably sped up their timeline a little bit so they're six and oh uh they got an off week this week but that conference now has three the american three top 25 teams and none of them are ucf smu cincinnati and memphis and i would argue that tulane like i think i'm higher on tulane than i am on memphis they could easily be the fourth top 25 team from that conference so getting back to the original point boise state front runner new year six birth we won't deny that but if it were to go to somebody else there's about four maybe even five teams from the american conference that could be in the mix Right, the American is clearly the the best of the of the group of five, and uh, yes, I agree. But the Mountain West had a heck of a non conference season. I think they have they had the most Power Five wins of any any league, group of five or Power Five. So here's what I'm basing that on, Stu, and this is uh, teams from the American are a combined twenty six and one against opponents from outside from the other basically group of fives the american is three and one again three and oh against the mountain west four and oh against the sun belt and six and oh against conference usa that's what i'm basing it on but anyway back to sunny dykes yes back to back to sunny dykes so the quote you had that i saw um when i read your story monday morning that i thought was was very compelling and also i think very generous in what it is was he he basically commended every coach who has been there since the death penalty and said each guy uh basically found uh left it better than they found it and yes i get it june jones at the end smu was was really struggling but there were still some good players he left behind who have been nfl players who went on to uh to play for chad morris and i think it's rare when you see head coaches give credit to the guys who especially the guy who who he just preceded or just uh just followed because that doesn't happen because usually they try to prop themselves up and talk about how crappy it was before they got there and they take shots at the guy who was there and he did just the opposite which i give him a lot of credit for doing because you just don't see that very often right and he was he was making the point that it's been it has it's been a long slow climb back for smu from 1987 to now and June Jones, it's a decade ago now, but that was a really big deal when he took them to four straight bowl games. They hadn't been to one before that since the death penalty. Then things kind of peered out. It didn't end well. Remember he quit like two games into the season? Uh, I do remember that, that, yes. That was a, that was a weird deal. Um, Chad Morris, had, I mean, he had to build it back up. I think he was only there three years, but it was, they got gradually better each year. And, and now we're seeing, seeing it next level. Should we go to the mailbag? Uh, before we do, I want to ask you something that this, we don't often talk too much um, media business, but I think this is a decent week to do it. You were a long-time Sports Illustrated employee. I was a short-time Sports Illustrated employee after you left. Uh, they were our, they were in the news, our former employer, about a lot of tumult that is going on over there. And we're not going to bore you about the the 
the the hardcore business aspect of it because quite honestly layoffs happen in a lot of lines of work this just hits closer to home because we know some of the people who are getting pushed out um but i think this is a decent time for both of us to kind of weigh in on something which is how influential because it looks like si the brand is really on the ropes and uh i think it had a profound impact on what both of us do for a living right it's a tragedy. What's a media tragedy? What's going on at, at Sports Illustrated right now? And I think we're we're basically seeing the end of the brand as you know it, as a, a premier journalism outlet. They, uh, the new owners, are taking it in a different direction. Um, look, when we were growing up, or even before, uh, you know, before I was even born, Sports Illustrated was to sports media what ESPN is now. They were the dominant brand, and I love reading stories. You know, I, I Dan Jenkins, I always credit as one of my influences. Uh, I love reading stories about him when he would show up at a college town for a big game. They would treat him like the way campuses now treat game day when they're coming into town. There's all these great stories of him. There was a huge Texas-Arkansas game in 1969 for the national championship, and he's driving around town with Frank Broyles the night for the game. Uh, any number of stories like that. So now... We could we could spend a whole podcast or more on when did things start to go south for SI, but one moment one decision they will definitely regret for the end of time is that they actually had an opportunity to buy ESPN and didn't do it, and that probably sounds nuts to people right now that the SI would have been in the position to buy ESPN and not vice versa, but that's where things were uh, at least in the early stages of ESPN. Uh, I was there for fifteen years. Well, I should perhaps say the first five I was at what was then CNNSI.com in Atlanta. The last 10 were at the Time Inc. building, which they're not even in anymore because they're not owned by Time Inc. Um, it's been a gradual, gradual, gradual erosion to get to the point where we are now. Um, I remember, so my last year there was 2014. And I, I remember, so it would have been the football season before that. I was covering a big game somewhere and there was a writer from the magazine there, a prominent writer, and it was already kind of starting to get into panic mode at that point. And he said, and I quote, five years from now, I'm not sure the magazine's going to exist. And I remember saying, that's crazy. There will always be Sports Illustrated. I think you and I would both recognize that that actually probably is going to be the case very soon. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and the timing of this is not far removed from my old employer, ESPN Magazine, which went under uh, just a few weeks ago. And they were so so competitive with each other for so long, but that the business of magazines is not what it is. You know, a lot, so many factors have changed it. The one thing I would say, and again, we're trying not to, to dwell on that part of it. Uh, we were, I would get Sports Illustrated in my, in my house when I was a kid. I think my brother got it, he's older. And the first byline I ever saw and the, ever noticed was in SI and it was Rick Tellender and some of the work he did. And then, you know, it was like, I don't think at that point I ever thought about becoming a sports writer. It just wasn't, I don't say it wasn't on my radar. It just wasn't something I was that interested in doing. And then after the fact, uh, when I felt like writing was something I was halfway decent at relative to certainly everything else I did in school that wasn't decent. So it seemed a little more of a natural fit. And then I started reading more of the SI stuff and and would gravitate occasionally to the to the not too frequent Gary Smith feature, and you'd realize he's writing on a level you 
probably could never get to, but you just had a little bit of reverence and awe for what was in the pages of SI because they had time and they had layers to it and it was depth and like you said there was great access that that was there and those are things that I think we tried to carry over to where we are now at The Athletic. I'm not saying that we're doing Gary Smith level work or necessarily Scott Price level work or you know that but I feel like there's consistently good storytelling in there and I feel like that's part of the influence of the glory days of SI and, and I think for a lot of people who might be younger who are seeing people lament that not just that people are getting laid off but this thing is dying and people only know it for, for, for one thing that you once did to me. I was very proud of a story I had done in my time at SI uh, and it was on Joe Moorhead and RPOs and the evolution of it and you just kind of zinged me with how many ads and pop-ups were in that story because there was video in the story on my own and i think that was not a zinger that was a very subtle hint hint you could come work for a place that doesn't have those no and i appreciate that but i think for a lot of people they see the the product through the lens of not the magazine which would have iconic photography in it uh, but now they see it much like everything else. They see it through the lens of the digital piece of it and what's on the internet and what you see on your phone. And that's probably a very short-sighted, but that's the reality. And that's, that's why we're at where we're at. So two things real quick. First of all, I want to make it clear that my first um, point of sympathy is for the 30 or so very talented staffers that got laid off last week. That's uh you know, yes, that seems to happen to everybody at some point in this industry, but you never want to see people lose jobs and certainly not uh, because of a, a really what I think will end up being disastrous corporate strategy at the top. Uh, but yes, there are larger, broader uh, uh, things to, to feel bad about in terms of the legacy of that place. And I'll just say one quick story. I mean, I could tell many, but this day probably began many years ago and I saw it firsthand that company was so so slow to recognize that the internet was the future uh, the magazine and the website operated almost completely independently of each other till much later than you would might think and the example I would give is that up until the 2005 final four so we're not talking like 1994 here 2005 SI.com was not allowed to run SI uh, photographs. The, the, the magazine's photographers, all the great pictures they would take, we were not allowed to run them on the website. It only changed when I was at the Final Four in St. Louis. You were there. Uh, the D. Brown, Illinois team uh, against UNC. The day between the semis and the championship, apparently Terry McDonald, the publisher, uh, no, not the publisher, Terry McDonald, the managing editor of the magazine, just happened to notice that, wait, the pictures on the website from last night's games are Getty pictures. Why aren't they our own pictures? And we had to explain that uh, because we're not allowed to do that. And the next day, everybody at SI.com had suddenly had access to the SI photos. But I think that was pretty emblematic of the, the slow, slow embrace of the internet. But anyway, there are any number of decisions that could have been made over the years that maybe would have helped things. But at the end of the day, they're, they're dealing with the same issue that everybody in print media is, which is everybody's reading on their phones now. So uh, I hope, I hope things start to turn around, things start to get better. 
even though I'm a little pessimist, more than a little pessimistic about the direction that those new owners are taking it. From that depressing little segue, let's get to a couple of mailbag questions. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Charles Bristow, hey guys, after the coaching change at Rutgers, two players, quarterback Art Satowski and running back Raheem Blackshear, told the coach they didn't want to play against Maryland in order to preserve the possibility of redshirting this season, possibly in anticipation of transferring. Thoughts? And who usually decides whether a player will redshirt? Coaches, players, joint decision. Now we have a very similar question to that from Scott Henry, who you know, Bruce. Scott Henry from Fairfield, Connecticut. Scott Henry from ESPN. Used Scott to work Henry? with him. I did. He says, "P.S. Yes, Bruce, we did used to work together up in Bristol. <laughs> P.S. Too. How are you?" Wow, there's a blast from my past. It's funny. I'm imagining Scott Henry. Yeah, I'm imagining Scott with a very baby face from our days, probably in the Manny Diaz days around Bristol, probably in the 90s. You, Scott, and Manny Diaz all worked together in a little cubicle? Uh, no, not a little cubicle, but all around. I don't even know what, if it was Building 2 then. I don't even remember what building it was, but yes. So. All right, so piggybacking off that other question. I recall a few years ago when Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey set out their bowl games, one of the takes on your pod was, I'm okay with it for the bowl game, but you have to start to wonder if this could seep into the regular season. Well, now that Houston and Rutgers have each experienced two of their better players all healthy, sitting out the rest of the year, do you think that any team that starts 2-2 two and two or worse is now in jeopardy of losing some of its top players at this choice? Um, it's, it wasn't just those two teams. We've seen quite a few players. It's week, week five is now a crucial week in the college football season where we get to see which players are going to suddenly decide to shut it down for the season uh thoughts welcome to the new reality i think uh it was headed in this direction and now there's a a big slope that's gone down that path and look i think there's some fans who are not going to like it because they care about their teams more than anything else but this is in the in the uh aspect of what's in my own best self-interest and they're taking their careers in a different direction if they feel like, all right, you know what, this is, especially in the, the Rutgers case is an interesting one, different from the one with uh, Eric King, because one, you have a new coach who just got there and the player was going through fourth offensive coordinator in four years. In this case, you have basically the writing on the wall is Rutgers is going to be awful this year. The administration certainly fired Chris Ashton is moving on, and some of the players saying, you know what, I didn't burn a redshirt year before, I'm going to save it, because this is in my best interest to do this, rather than, we're going to stink, we know it, the school, the administration's already basically acknowledged it, so you know what, I'm looking out for me. And I think it's hard to be that critical of that. I think what's interesting about... disagree? Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree, and I think what's so interesting about this is that it's a, these guys are just taking advantage of a rule that the coaches themselves wanted. Oftentimes, the coaches have no input. The transfer portal, you know, no coach would have voluntarily signed up for the transfer portal. That was that was uh, instituted by higher-ups in, in, in the NCAA membership. Uh, or the waivers. You know, the coaches hate the waiver process where guys can get immediately eligible and it's unclear exactly why one from one case to the next. But the AFCA itself and the coaches at large really wanted this four-game redshirt rule 
for their own benefit to be able to use a guy and not burn his red shirt because he plays one snap of one game. But the players have found a way to use it to their own benefit and in a way where, okay, I'm in a situation that I don't think is the best for my career and I have an opportunity to go somewhere else and still keep my year of eligibility. So I think while it would probably be more ideal if they made that decision in the offseason, this is what's going to happen. Some guys are going to shut it down after four games and do it this way. So um, I can't really fault them. I thought the Derek King one was probably the closest I would come to being like, eh, I'm not sure about that just because he's the star quarterback of the team. But it seemed like in that case, the coach himself is on board with it. Um, obviously, the interim coach at Rutgers probably not thrilled about two of his players defecting right before the fifth game. But that's the rule, and that's that was that you make the rule, you got to live with the consequences, right? Yeah, and look, and if you're also this is a running back, and it's not to say you can't get injured at other positions, but we we come to think that there's only so many carries a running back has. If I'm this kid, and this is a really talented running back, he's one of the best players in the Rutgers program, I think there would be a lot of interest in him. And I imagine whoever gets the job, one of his bigger priorities is going to have to be recruiting guys who are still on that roster. So to keep, to get them to come back, not just for the guys you're going to build forward. I mean, it just, these are the things that are going to, I think, be on AD's minds when they go through, hey, it's it's late September, what am I going to do when we get to that cycle? Now, we usually don't get that many head coaches fired before middle of October when this rule is relevant, right, because it's four games. But, look, I think this is, as I said, it's a little bit of a slippery slope from where Scott and the other question came in from as it related to the sitting out the bowl games and how important are the bowl games and everything like that. And and uh, I just think... Again, as, as somebody who's covered college football and, no, and you know worked around it for a while, I just think this is the reality of where we're at. And I think that for a lot of people, and then you know to tie it together the, to, the, to the, the California law that's going to go into effect, I guess, four years from now, the thing that I brought up last week, whereas people will look at them as employees and maybe view them professionally in terms of how it is, it's not that way right now. I mean, maybe some people think of it that way and maybe people post that way and maybe some of our colleagues in, in the press box write about it that way, but they're not employees and there is a distinction. And when you get closer to that, maybe whoever's paying people uh, will look at it differently, but we're not at that point right now. Speaking of the California law, we answered or, or we, we read a lot of those emails in last Thursday's episode. If you didn't catch it, the Audible Extra on Thursday, well, go back a week to Monday. We asked you guys to send in your thoughts on the law. We wanted to get kind of a taste of public opinion. We read a bunch of those on Thursday's episode. you got to listen to that one on the Athletic app. Uh, here's one more from Andy Katersky in New York. Hi, Bruce and Stu. Love the Audible. Thank you for adding the Audible Extra. You're welcome. This past week, there have been a lot of mailbag questions and answers about the new California law. I was wondering... Based on what this law allows, or at least the intentions behind it, would the actions that led to the SMU death penalty scandal of the 80s now be legal in California? Uh, I don't think it's that cut and dried. The SMU death penalty, had, there were a lot of factors behind that. Uh, guys were definitely getting paid. Boosters were paying guys. Uh, it was 
so blatant that, that that I mean, if you haven't ever watched the Thirty for Thirty, I highly recommend watching the was that one called Pony Express? Uh, it was like a Payroll to Meet, or I think that was the book was called the Payroll to Meet. It was um, it was anyway SMU Thirty for Thirty Pony Excess maybe Pony Excess that was it yes. I had never seen a lot of that footage, including that amazing, amazing scene where uh, the the guy gets confronted about the the anchor puts, has the envelope and confronts the guy about it on uh, live television. Like, and a school has never been caught quite as red-handed as that school was in terms of there were there were notebooks. There were this is what you this guy's you're supposed to get paid this week and this guy next week, uh, and then. The reason they actually got the death penalty was they got caught once. They said they wouldn't do it again. They got caught doing it again. It's pretty. It's pretty unbelievable. I don't think this law, as it's intended, or whatever remedy the NCAA will end up coming up with, will legalize boosters handing a wad of cash to uh, players. Now, the argument being made, the concern is that well, that you can just if that's a format, that's a distinction, right? it's going to be that effectively it's just that the boosters are going to get the guys jobs at their at their companies or whatnot and and maybe that's the case but um i still think that it's in the ncaa's best interest to come up with a solution that'll satisfy the law that what the legislatures in california and other states want but would also allow them to regulate it in a way where you can't blatantly buy recruits like that okay do we have time for one more? Uh, yes. This one comes from an Auburn fan, and I should note that it was sent before this loss to Florida, but I, I, I think the message is still the same. From John McDonald. Hey, Bruce and Stu, huge fan of the show. Keep up the good work. I'm a student at Auburn, and it sometimes feels like I'm one of the few that is generally satisfied with Gus Malzahn. By the way, the subject line of the email, I should say, is called Auburn Coaching Whiplash. Do you think there's a reason that there's so much whiplash in our fan base beyond having our biggest rival be the best dynasty in the recent history and our second biggest rival in Georgia being a rising juggernaut? From Gus being on the hot seat in most of 2017 to winning those two big games and getting that massive contract to being right back on the hot seat in early 2018 and even some discussion this year despite a great start, does any other program in the country deal with this seemingly every year? I think Auburn's pretty unique. No, and I think I think he made a, a very compelling point, and I think the biggest reason is when you're arch rival, and there is no rivalry that's hotter than Alabama and Auburn in major college sports, and when Nick Saban leads Alabama onto the greatest run that we've seen in modern college football, it has after effects. So whether it's them pulling the plug on Gene Chizik not long after he leads them to a national title, which hadn't happened very often, right? It was whatever, it was a 50-year stretch or something. Um, and then you see Gus leads them to the brink of a national title, right? We were both out there when Florida won on the last, I think it was the last play of the game that James passed to, to uh, man, I'm blanking on the tall receiver they had. Anyway, um, to me, that's the, that, that's the problem, though. It's when you are getting these, like to them, eight and four is unacceptable because they see what the rival is doing. And it's, it's a high-stakes game, and they don't want to lose it. And they don't have a ton of patience. 
I think it's as simple as that. Um, I think that's true, certainly to some extent in the in terms of Gus and what he's being measured against. But this is kind of part of the Auburn culture and has been for a long time. Uh, the I mean, Tommy Tuberville had a great record against Alabama. Alabama was struggling back then, and yet it seemed like he was on the hot seat from from one year to the next. Sometimes he got a little bit of a reprieve with that undefeated season, and then within a couple years, they were grumbling about him again. Uh, Gene Chizik obviously. <laughs> went from national title to fired in the span of two years. It's it's always been a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately crowd. Well, I think one of the things that also uh, exacerbates it is they have really, really heavy-handed boosters. long time ago, it was Bobby Louder, and it's one of the, I think it's one of the schools, it's not to say one of the only, but where the AD is really not going to make a lot of the decisions on who gets hired and who gets fired of the football program. That's coming from somebody else. And when you have that kind of, when you have boosters, it's not to say that they're all idiots. I'm not trying to say that. I'm certainly not trying to say that about the Auburn boosters. But they're usually not the most rational people when it comes to running an athletic department. And so I think you couple that with the whole haves and the have-nots. And look, Auburn's a have. They're not a have-not. But it's almost like there's there's a different category in there. It's the have, the have-nots, and the have-everythings. And I think when you have Alabama and Georgia, especially the way they recruit, and Auburn's there, I think it's it's a uh, it's life at the top of the food chain, and it's not pretty always. Um, because John's a current student, I'm guessing he's too young to remember this, but the story that kind of personifies what you're talking about is in 2003. So Tuberville, I'm just looking back here. Tuberville goes 9-4 and four in 2002. And they're ranked very high going into the next season. They've got Carnell Williams and Ronnie Brown and Jason Camp, all the guys that would end up being part of that undefeated team the next year. And they have a disappointing year. They go 8-5. and five. And the week of the Iron Bowl, I think it was louder, right? Uh, they, they fly on a secret mission to Louisville behind Tuberville's back to go recruit Bobby Petrino from Louisville to come to Auburn. And, and it gets blown up once once it gets exposed. And then Tuberville beats Alabama, and that's the end of that. But, uh, I mean, that was just a absolutely wild saga that kind of exemplified the the the, the, the culture and, and one of the big explanations of why everybody assumes that Anytime Gus Malzahn loses a football game, he's back on the hot seat. Yeah. And by the way, don't rule him out being still on the hot seat later this year. If, I mean, they've still got to play LSU, Alabama, Georgia. Still on the hot seat or still or off the hot seat? I think he's off it right now, but what if they keep, I mean, what if they don't end up winning any of those big games and they finish his eight and four? I bet he's back on the hot seat. Hmm. You're probably right. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, which, what haven't, why, what are you waiting for? Um, you can get 40% off by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible. That will allow you to both read our articles and listen to The Audible Extra on Thursdays. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us. It helps get the word out. By the way, you can also find The Audible now on The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible. 
Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme music is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can find their music on Spotify, wherever you get your favorite music from. Follow me, Stu, on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to The Athletic. You can try it for free for seven days at theathletic.com slash free trial. We'll talk about it for years.